Romans chapter 7 is going to be where we're, we're going to start. Uh, this is the verse that we've been sharing every single week around here. And uh, it says this, um, Romans chapter 7 verse 14 says this, For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold as a slave to sin. For I do not understand what I am doing. Come on, who's been there before? Okay. I don't know how many of the 1030 service have ever done something. You're like, why am I doing this? This makes no sense. This is what goes through my head every single time I step into Krispy Kreme. All right? So, <laughs> what am I doing to myself? Um, <laughs> because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. For Now, if I do what I do not want to do, I agree with the law that it's good. So now I am no longer the one doing it, but it is sin living in me. For I know that nothing good lives in me that is in my flesh. For the desire to do what is good is with me, but there is no ability to do it. For I do not do the good that I want to do, but I practice the evil that I do not want to do. This is what I call the doo-doo scripture, all right? That helps you memorize it. Verse 20, now if I do what I do not want, I am no longer the one that does it, but it is the sin that's living in me. So I discover this law. When I want to do what is good, evil is present with me. For in my inner self, I delight in God's law. But I see a different law in the parts of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and taking me prisoner to the law of sin in the parts of my body. What a wretched man I am. Who will rescue me from this body of death? Today, as we continue on our series seven, I want to speak to you from the subject, it's not fair. It's not fair. As we deal with the issue of envy in our lives. Will you pray with me just one more time? Jesus, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that it's alive and it's active. It's powerful. That it transforms us from the inside out. So we give everything to you right now. Take this moment and teach us. In Jesus' mighty name, come on and everybody shouted. Amen. Um, those of you who have kids would especially know this, but a little while ago, my, uh, my daughter had the opportunity to go to a birthday party, I believe it was, or an event that my son did get to go to. And because of this, he bemoaned the whole process that he was going through in this moment. And as we worked through this with him, and as we tried to have a conversation with him about how like, there's going to be times in your life where Shiloh's going to do things that you don't get to do, and, and vice versa, he just wasn't computing it the way that I wanted him to do. And at a certain point, it came out, what he was really feeling and thinking, he said, it's not fair. Come on, how many of you have heard that before? It's, it's not fair. This was his lament, is that it was not fair. And so we had, to, we had to work through it, and we're going through this, and I'm trying to convince him and of all these different things and have rational arguments with him, which doesn't exist with a nine-year-old. There's nothing rational about it whatsoever. So finally, in the throes of irrational conversation, I said what I thought I would never say. I've said what my parents said. Life's not fair. <laughs> He just looks at me like, wow, dad, way to go pessimistic on me, right? (laughs) And uh, as I sat back and I thought about that conversation, I've started to realize that I think we feel the same way. We have this sense of unfairness that's happening in our lives. And many times we actually don't understand what it is that we're saying or why we're feeling the way that we're feeling about fair or not fair. And what I discovered in this moment is that justice was dealing with something that many of us deal with on a very systemic level, and that is envy. Not jealousy. He wasn't coveting something. He was, he was envying something. And in the conversation, what was really interesting is that Shiloh would have attitude during different moments before she got to go to this party, to which mom and I would then start to work with her and say, hey, listen, if you're going to have an attitude, we're going to take this party away from you, and you would watch Justice get excited about it. (laughs) 
right? Like he would try to get involved. And I was like, okay, calm down. And, and eventually she would go to the party. But I just watched this whole thing play out and his disappointment and the whole unfairness thing. And what I've realized is that he wasn't actually dealing so much with, with like the real issue of fairness as much as he was dealing with, with envy. See, at first glance, we would simply define this as jealousy or coveting something in which we desire what another person has and would feel better if we had the same thing. But what I've come to realize is that my kids and us, we're not satisfied by then receiving something. We want to have what was given to the other one in the first place. And for them, for it to be taken away. So it's not jealousy that we're dealing with. It is envy at the most basic form. It's not good enough to receive the same thing. Envy causes us. We must, envy causes us to get to the place where we must have the very thing that was originally given to the other one in the first place. You see, envy, as somebody would say, delights in the way redistribution of goods affects their self and their rival's respective positions. It gives the envier satisfaction to see their rival's goods taken away, even if they don't acquire it for themselves. In her book, Why Does This Happen? In her book, Glittering Vices, Rebecca DeYoung writes concerning envy this. Envy, on the other hand, is typically more concerned with who we are. Envy targets the internal qualities of another person, qualities that give a person worth, honor, standing, or status. If the envious do desire an external thing, it's because that object symbolizes or signifies its its owner's high position or greatness in reference to the envier. See, in other words, envy causes a discontentment with what we both have and don't have because we believe these are the things that define our intrinsic worth. Seth has this beautiful bright blue shirt on right over here. Why don't you stand up, bud? Come on. Look at this guy. I'm proud. He's been doing Orange Theory, so he's looking good. Yeah, Tyler still looks better than you, though. So I'm just, I'm just putting that out there. So, so he's got this, uh, he's got this blue shirt on, and 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 I like that blue shirt. But here's what envy does. Envy is more than I like that blue shirt and I want that blue shirt. So I go to the store and buy that blue shirt. Now I have the same blue shirt. Envy causes me to go, Seth shouldn't have that blue shirt. I should have that blue shirt because I am really wanting what I believe Seth feels about himself because of that blue shirt. Are you guys tracking with me? I don't actually want his blue shirt. I want... What Seth feels because he's wearing this blue shirt that makes him look so good. <laughs> Say that slower. <laughs> I know, right? That got creepy. I know. So good. So the only way that I can now feel better about the situation is not just to receive his shirt. I need Seth's shirt and Seth can't have it. Because if Seth still feels about himself the way that he does because of that blue shirt, I am now still brooding and hurt because of it. That is envy. So envy is difficult. The envious want what they do not have but feel they deserve. And what's worse to them is those who don't deserve it. Maybe you felt this way before. I'm just, it's like gut punches all over this message today, right? What's worse to them is those who don't deserve it do have it. 
the ultimate injustice. The envious are perpetually preoccupied with what they lack. All they have is worthless if you have something more or better. They're convinced that others' accomplishments, accolades, admirable qualities somehow nullify their own. To them, life is a series of zero-sum games in which there can be only one winner. So if someone else is winning, they're clearly losing. And to lose is to be worthless. The envious feel persecuted. Listen to this. This this brings it to its bottom level and I think wrecks all of our hearts when we hear this. The envious feel persecuted by the good in others' lives. For someone else to succeed is for them to suffer. The envious cannot stomach being upstaged. Anyone else's perceived superiority surfaces their lack and inferiority. To come up short in an area they prioritize is absolutely unacceptable and therefore excruciating. Because of this, they can come off tortured and brooding in ways that confuse those around them because their ability to be happy is based on a set of secret comparisons. This seems to be something we are facing as a generation right now. We could probably change the name of Instagram to Envygram. <laughs> where we hide behind the glow of our screens, brooding and tortured because of the perceived greatness that somebody else is receiving. Come on, somebody. Right? Maybe you're a real estate agent and you're sitting there looking at the other real estate agents in your firm or whatever you call it. I don't know what you call it to the real estate agent. The brokerage. There you go. Thank you. And you get on their Instagram every single day so you can look at the 89 and a half houses they've sold compared to your 15. But your 15 are good enough because Joe over there sold 89. And so you hope that every single one of those 89 houses burned down so that Joe doesn't feel what he feels. <laughs> Come on, somebody. That's the, the envy thing inside of us. See, we can't celebrate others at work or in the office because they want employee of the month and everybody's celebrating and you're like, yay for Jan again. <laughs> Somebody was like, I know Jan. <laughs> She's actually nice. <laughs> But in that case, and then we step back, and in our, in our quest for superiority, we sit back and we fold our hands, or we have our slow clap, and we go, don't they know Jan, though? I know Jan. I know Jan's a horrible person. How does she get that, and I don't get that? Don't people know that I go to church, and I love Jesus? Uh-oh. <laughs> He's stepping in my garden. So someone was quoted saying this, envy can surface in the following ways. Check it out. This is a gauge, I think, for all of our lives. Acting offended by the talent, success, or good fortune of others. Secretly celebrating someone else's difficulty or distress. Assigning underhanded motives to others' behavior. Searching for, magnifying, and broadcasting any imperfection in those others admire. Speaking poorly of people behind their back. Antagonizing, teasing, or bullying. Ridiculing people, institutions, or ideals that have achieved something you haven't or can't. Sabotaging the success of a project or person. Spreading lies about others. Poisoning the reputation. Hyping your own image or accomplishments to make yourself look better than you are. Essentially doing whatever is necessary to keep others from outdoing you. Envy. 
Here's the truth this morning. Enviers, they don't necessarily want what you have. They want how they think it makes you feel. Which brings us to the cycle I call the envy cycle. Check this out. This is the envy cycle. I put this together. I want to just kind of walk through what this looks like. What's important for us to understand about this cycle is that we have a tendency to think that these right here, low self-worth and comparison, are what cause envy. Which is actually not the case. Envy is a systemic issue. That's what these seven deadly sins is about. It's actually a systemic issue. Envy is a spiritual issue first and foremost before anything else. So envy actually, at the end of the day, is this rot that is inside of us that causes us to go down the path of assessing who we are. And the problem is, because of what we call theologically original sin, many of us come to the table having a low self-worth. And I'm not talking about self-esteem. I'm talking about low self-worth or value. Esteem rises and falls, doesn't it? Like at the end of the day, you can look in the mirror and you can go today like, oh, I've got great self-esteem. Things are just working out for me. But the next day you can go, I've got low self-esteem because things aren't working out on my face today. Right? So my esteem rises, my esteem falls. But low self-worth is a bigger issue. It's a darker issue. It's a harder issue. So this envy, this spiritual issue, this original sin inside of us causes us to look at things and eventually come to the assessment of ourself. And because of this right here, because of our low self-worth, we then have to figure out a way to deal with it. How do I... How do I fix this? Well, low self-worth and then the desire to fix it leads us to this thing called comparison. And comparison kills us. Comparison is killing us. Comparison is damaging us. And this is what comparison does. Comparison causes us to do two things. Only two things. There are no other two things that comparison causes us to do. The first one is this. To see ourselves lower than another. Self-deprecation. Or to see ourselves higher than another. Pride. Now pride and envy, if we go in that direction, they're just dancing circles around us right now. And now we're in this vicious cycle. So then what we do is we stand back and we've got to find people. If we are looking at things from the low self-worth and we move to comparison, right, and we shift, we've got to look for somebody who we are better than and assess ourselves according to them. So then you quickly start thumbing through Facebook and Instagram and thinking about that person. You're like, I know I'm better than this person. Their life's a dumpster fire right now. At least mine's not that. Come on, let's be honest. And we start looking at their stuff and it gives us this weird sense of goodness. It gives us this weird sense, like my my relationship with Jesus is better than that person. At least I'm not struggling with sin in that way. <laughs> Come on, am I talking to anybody? So then what happens out of comparison, those two arrows in between there, we move to judgment. And because we are now judging, it starts to cycle back again to envy because we have to then keep an eye on what everybody's doing because if that person shifts... And I've watched this, and this is, this is like thick in the church so many times. That person pivots, and they meet Jesus, and all of a sudden Jesus starts radically working on their life, and now all of a sudden the person you were comparing yourself to is somehow, somehow coming back around and getting better, and things are changing in their life, and now you despise the very one who's bringing miracles into their life. Wow. 
The issue with envy then becomes lack of love. You cannot envy and love at the same time. It's an impossible. You cannot compare yourself and love others at the same time. And so we find ourselves in this cycle. So then what happens is we start celebrating people's demises. The fast clap comes when they hit the wall. Am I talking to anybody today? The fast clap is when that person gets demoted. On the outside, we go, oh man, that's, that's so, so bad. And inside, you've got that little thing inside of you that's like... <laughs> this is not where you want to dismiss service. I'm just putting that right there. <laughs> We're not going to. <laughs> but can I push it a little bit harder? Just for a minute. Watch what James chapter 3, starting in verse 13 says. Who among you is wise and understanding? By his good conduct he should know, he should show that his works are done in the gentleness that comes from wisdom. So wisdom's gentle, just so you know. If anybody's ever tried to assert wisdom in your life, arrogantly or aggressively, it ain't wisdom. It's just their perspective. It's gentle, it's helping, it's loving. But if you have bitter envy and selfish ambition in your heart, don't boast and deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come, from, come down from above, but is earthly. So what James is talking about here is that there is a wisdom that some of us try to pitch in the name of envy. All right? It's unspiritual and it's demonic. For where there is envy and self... Watch what happens. Where there is envy and selfish ambition, there is disorder in every evil practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peace-loving, gentle, compliant, full of mercy, and good fruits, unwavering without pretense. And the fruit of righteousness is sown in peace by those who cultivate peace. And he goes on to say... Beginning of chapter 4, what is the source of wars? Watch this. If you ever wonder where this stuff comes from? What is the source of wars and fights among you? Don't they come from your passions which wage war within you? So now he's hearkening back to what Paul would say in Romans chapter 7. You desire and you do not have. You murder and covet and cannot obtain. Think about that. You murder and covet and you cannot obtain. You fight and you wage war. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and don't receive because you ask with wrong motives so that you may spend it on your pleasures. Got quiet in church. (laughs) So what do we do? We have to interrupt the cycle. So once again, I want to I borrow from Rebecca DeYoung. She speaks to this in her book, Glittering Vices. Watch what she writes. This is amazing. A self-secure in its unconditional worth, a worth based on God's love, is a self free to affirm others' gifts without feeling threatened or thereby made inferior. It is a self free to love without anxiety that its own contributions will be compared to another's and found wanting. It is a self able to take joy in its own good and the good of others. The key, as W.H. Auden would write, since all knowledge tempts man into envy is to love without desiring all that you are not. See, worth then 
is established. It's not established by what we have or do not have. Worth is not founded upon what we feel or don't feel. Worth is not formed by what others say or do not say. Worth is an intrinsic and imputed value that comes from one and one alone. And so combating this and overcoming envy is not just a series of actions that we will participate in. It is a matter of truths that we need to assimilate into our heart. Because I'm like, well, help me out. How do, I, how do I do this? How do I fix this? And the automatic idea is to behave. But it's interesting. In your behaving, you're going to be tempted to compare yourself to somebody else's behavior. Then envy. And then we're in the back into the same cycle. So how do we fix this? That's a good question, Jason. I'm glad you asked it. <laughs> how do we fix this? Every shout truth. truth. We have to fix it with truth. Not behaviors. Behaviors flow from right truths. It will flow out of first and foremost understanding truths. So I want to leave us this morning with some truths. Can we do that today? And I'm gonna, I want to I use these more or less as a declaration over every single one of us. So I want you to write these down. I'm not going to teach through each of these points. There's a lot of content here. I could probably spend, as I've dip, like, got into envy, I probably could do like an eight-week message on envy alone. Um, and don't worry, it's going to get better. Next week's greed. Yay! <laughs> <laughs> Some of you are like, definitely not coming back. All right. But all of these, like, at the end of the day, if we can deal with these things, man, I, like, I just, I'm believing that this series is going to bring so much freedom to our lives. And here's the cool part. At the end of this series, it's going to get amazing because we're going to move into the Advent season. Come on, somebody. Right? And the Advent season is all about hope because, like Paul says, who will save this wretched man? Come on, in December, we're going to talk about the hope that we have in Jesus, where my salvation comes from. And then we're going to move into January. We're going to do a series called Not By Might, a study in the Holy spirit and then we're going to understand where we have the power and the ability to walk out this life the way God's called us to live. Come on. And so that's the journey that we're on but we got to understand some truths first. So what I want to do, close this out today. I want to look at three statements of truth concerning our imputed and established worth in and through Jesus. First one's this. Come on every shot number one. Check this out. Worth is assessed by understanding the intricacies of our design. Worth is assessed by understanding the intricacies of our design. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10 says this, For we are his, what? Work. Work. Come on, we shout it out. What? Created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared ahead of time for us to do. We are his workmanship. Psalms 39, 13 through 18 doubles down. Watch what it says. For it was you who created my inward parts. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I will praise you because I have been remarkably and wondrously made. Your works are wondrous and I know this very well. My bones were not hidden from you when I was was made in secret when I was formed in the depths of the earth. Your eyes saw me when I was formless. All the days were written in your book and planned before a single one of them. God, how precious your thoughts are to me. How vast their sum is. If I counted them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. When I wake up, I am still with you. Why he's shouting, that is good stuff. And I didn't write it. See, our worth is assessed by understanding the intricacies of our design. Come on, parents, you know what I'm talking about when your kids come home with their art project? (laughs) 
right? And they come running in and they're carrying this thing. And you're like, oh, you brought me a peacock. They're like, no, this is a house. (laughs) Yes, it's a house with feathers on it. (laughs) Right? So what do you do? What do you think, Dad? And you look at it, and in your head you're thinking one thing, but on your face and coming out of your mouth, you're like, that is is the best thing I have ever seen in my life. Oh my gosh, son, you're going to change the world. (laughs) What are we doing? We're speaking to the pride that he has in this thing that he created. Why? Because he understands the intricacies of it. He understands how he labored over this thing in class all day long. And some of us have this tendency to believe that we are not designed by the creator of heaven and earth. And so many times we kind of toss ourselves aside as if God didn't sit down and form you beautifully and wonderfully. He sat down at his desk and he designed you. Even that weird nose on your face, he put it there. Why? Because he wanted to. He said, but he knitted you together. I mean, think about that. This is God, the creator of the universe, just knitting you together. I mean, he's crossing his legs like that. That's weird, but he knit you together. He formed you. And so many of us, we step into our lives every single day. We wake up and we think that we're the product of some cosmic sneeze. The universe exploded, but we all came out. So no wonder we devalue each other. (laughs) Think about, this is good. No wonder we devalue each other the way that we do in this world because we simply think that we are the product of chaos and happenstance. But when we understand that we are intricately made by the hands of God, we start to see each other differently. Think about that. Next time you start judging somebody, next time you start looking at somebody where remember that they were knit together by somebody a whole lot more powerful than us. Sorry, I just got really excited on that one. <laughs> Everybody shot number two. Second thing is this, is that worth is assessed by understanding our relational designation. What do I mean by that? 1 John chapter 3 verse 1 tells us, See what great love the Father has given us, that we should be called God's children. And we are! <laughs> Just, you know, that's how you have to say it. That's the way that it's written. Okay? <laughs> the English people in here will love me for that. And we are! <laughs> it's a declaration yeah. that he's making. Why? Because he understands a designation. Yeah. I'm a child of God. Right. I'm a child of God. I am a son. I am a daughter of the most high God. My worth is based upon an eternal declaration, not an external affirmation. Come on. And some of us are searching for everybody to affirm us instead of God and his declaration over us. And I know that because I do that. We bring our daddy issues and we throw it at God. But he's the perfect father. Right, right. Come on, am I talking to anybody today? (laughs) See, worth is assessed by understanding our relational designation. 
I have this game that I'm playing with my kids right now. So I'll go to my youngest, she's two, and I'll look at her and I'll say, baby girl, you know you are daddy's favorite youngest. (laughs) This works with three kids, above three, I don't know how this would work, but (laughs) you're my favorite youngest, I love you. I love you, that's what she'll say. Then I go to Shiloh, baby girl, you are my favorite oldest daughter. And she looks at me, I love you, love you too. Then I go to my son, you are my favorite son. I only got one. I love you. I go to her, I'm like, you are my favorite wife. (laughs) I don't do that, that's actually never been said in our house. It's never been said. Never, never been said. <laughs> what, what am I trying to accomplish? I'm trying to help them understand their relational designation. And in understanding the relational designation, they have worth and value that is being imputed into them. And that hopefully I can be the type of father all my life, even in my mistakes, that allow them to feel like they have worth and value because dad loves them as his kid. And if we can walk out of here today with our shoulders held back, I am a child of God. I am who he says that I am. Come on, somebody. It changes everything. And number three, the last one is this. Every shot, number three. I love this one. Worth is assessed by understanding the total purchase price. Worth is assessed by understanding our total purchase price. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20. See what great love the Father has given us that we should be called. Oh, sorry, wrong one. 1 Corinthians 6, 19. Don't you know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you? whom you have from God. You are not your own. For you were bought at a price. So glorify God with your body. You know, Molly over here, she's a real estate agent and she's a good friend of ours. And We've talked about this before, but just in listening to her job and what she goes, and I know there's other real estate agents uh, in here, but we're always having conversations about the market right now, market value, price, and homes. And how many of you know that right now in Salt Lake City, everybody's paying above market value price in many ways. I remember when we first sold our home a couple years ago, we had 100 people walk through on the Saturday, and we had nine offers all over purchase price by the end of the day. It's crazy. It was just like moving, 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 moving. And at the end of the day, you come to realize, why do people, why are people willing to pay over market value? It's because they love the house. They want the house. And if you love something, come on somebody, you'll pretty much pay anything for it. If you want something that bad, you will pretty much pay anything for it. And so you have people who are coming and they're buying homes and they're like, man, I need to get this home. I need to do what I need to do. And so I will give money above the market value. I will give money above the market price in order to get that home. And here's the thing about it. Something that I think if we can understand this will change the way that we look at Jesus. Because of sin, because of envy, because of these things that we're talking about, they've marred us, they've broken us, they've damaged us, and now there's a market value that is assessed to our lives that many of us participate in. 
We go, the market value of that person is shame. The market value of that person is guilt. The market value of that person is brokenness. The market value of that person is never stepping into what God has for them. But here's the amazing part. Jesus, the one who came and he gave it all for us. He looked at every single one of it. He said, hey, listen, I know what that person is worth. And while they've been marred and there is a market price on their life, I'm going to pay double for that person. To buy us off the market, it took the giving of his life at the end of the day. That is the gospel. That is the good news at its form. That is what this is right here, that you and I were in the market and we were marred, busted, broken, sitting back, nobody wanted us, and wow, we were yet still sinners. Christ died for us. What does that tell us? No matter where you are at in this room today, you are worth the life of Jesus.